Previously unsurvived by one, Tom was put on trial and was sentenced to death. Survived by One, The Life and Mind of a Family Mass Murderer by Robert E. Hanlon with Thomas V. Odell. Episode 16, Life on Death Row. At the age of 19, Tom Odell was the youngest death row inmate in the Illinois prison system. He spent the next 10 years in the condemned unit at the Menard Correctional Center, one of the oldest prisons in Illinois. Built in 1878, Menard is a daunting structure cut from the sandstone on the bank of the Mississippi, about 60 miles south of East St. Louis. Like all other death row inmates, he was confined to his cell 22 and a half hours a day. His death row cell at Menard was 9 feet wide by 9 feet long by 9 and a half feet high. The gray concrete cell walls, floors, and ceiling were cold and scarred by rust stains that had bled through the paint. A stainless steel toilet and sink were bolted to the wall opposite the bars. A six feet by three feet cot was bolted to the floor and wall. For one and a half hours per day, he was allowed to exercise outside of his cell and socialize in the prison yard with the other death row inmates, the likes of which included hardcore psychopaths such as John Wayne Gacy, who was convicted of the murders of 33 teenage boys and young men. Aside from Gacy, whom he despised, Tom developed friendships with other condemned unit inmates and lifers. In fact, the older inmates taught him how to survive in prison and protected him from the violent psychopaths and sexual predators. Walking through the doors of Illinois Death Row at the age of 19, the youngest at the time to have received the ultimate punishment, I was scared to death. 140 pounds. I had no hair on my face. I had long hair. I tried to inflate myself to make myself look bigger hold in as much air as my lungs and chest will hold, and not look so scared. You know, you hear all of the stories about a pretty white boy going to the joint. He's going to be chosen as somebody's wife and all that stuff. I heard my share of them. I was trying to make myself look bigger. I was scared to death. Once I got there, though, the stories proved to be wrong. The image that the public has of these guys, that they are foaming at the mouth, the worst of the worst, proved to be false, for the most part. Don't get me wrong, there were some really bizarre characters, like John Wayne Gacy, but for the most part, as a whole, we took care of each other. It was like a big family. Everybody took me in because I was the youngest. Took me in, tried to educate me. You need to do this, don't do that. Then they explained the appeals process and what I need to do to help with my appeals. I mean, they gave me some good pointers. I didn't need to walk around with my chest inflated. Bobby Lewis, Tony Guest, Daryl Sims, and William Bracey, most of them really helped me. My expectations of death row and the reality of death row were as different as night and day. In the movies, you see young white kids coming to prison and becoming prey to the predators time and time again. But that was far from what actually took place. The old saying, it takes a village to raise a child, came into play. Most of the men there were in their 30s and 40s, and they embraced me like a son as they told me what would happen on death row and in the courts during the appeals process. 
They were always willing to answer any questions I had about anything, and strongly encouraged me to get involved in my appeals, because nobody knew my case better than I did. According to Death Penalty Information Center, or DPIC, from 1976 to 2011, there were 1,277 executions in the United States. The year that Tom Odell stepped onto death row, 1986, there were 18 executions. The peak year during that time period was 1999, with 98. Of those executed from 1976 to 2011, 716 were white, 441 were African-American, 96 were Hispanic, and 24 were classified as other with respect to race. The race ratio of death row inmates varies from those executed. 44% were white, 42% African-American, 12% Hispanic, and 2% quote-unquote other. There were 61 women on death row as of December 31st, 2012, representing 1.93% of the death row population. Twelve women have been executed since 1976. With respect to the societal effects of the death penalty, 88% of the polled academic criminologists, including many of the former and current presidents of the American Society of Criminology, reject the notion that the death penalty acts as a deterrent to murder. According to the Illinois Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, or ICADP, death penalty cases from trial to execution cost states eight to ten times more than the cost of life without parole. And, according to the DPIC, Every state that has done a cost study has found that death penalty cases cost millions more than non-death cases, including cases that receive life without parole. Furthermore, the strongest argument against the death penalty in contemporary society is the ominous risk of execution of the innocent following wrongful conviction. According to the DPIC, 139 death row inmates have been exonerated and released from prison during the past four decades in the United States. Nearly half of these exonerations occurred in four states, Illinois, Florida, Texas, and Oklahoma. Over 30% of all exonerations occurred within Illinois and Florida. Although the principle of retributive justice, as expressed in the eye for an eye philosophy, is appealing to many, particularly given its biblical origins, the American justice system is far from flawless. As such, the possibility that an individual may be executed for crimes that they did not commit is a disturbing reality of the death penalty. I spent my time playing basketball, lifting weights, playing cards and dominoes, or just watching television. I wrote a lot of letters to my friends. I also responded to letters from girls who managed to find my address and wrote to tell me how cool they thought I was because I had murdered my parents. That was one thing I ate up at the time because it diminished my responsibility and guilt. It was remarkable that so many teenagers, especially sexually abused girls, praised my courage and strength with regard to the manner in which I had retaliated against my abusers. At the time, it made me feel like I had done a great service to mankind by committing this horrific act of violence, which, of course, I used to justify my actions and repress my guilt. Now, after many years of growth and self-examination, I often wonder what happened to those troubled teens who praised me. It disturbs me more now 
knowing that the horrible crime for which I am singularly responsible, and which ended the lives of my parents and siblings, and shattered my community, could have taken place in so many other homes, with a large wake of ripples flowing through families, like a hot knife through butter. My routine was very simple in the beginning. Staying up all night, going to the yard, rain, sleet, or shine, watching TV or listening to the radio. My time seemed to be going by uneventfully, until I allowed a reporter from a local newspaper, the Southern Illinoisan, to interview me on a visit. My objective was to demonstrate that I was not a vicious animal or some evil creature, as I had been portrayed in the media. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way I had hoped. I was extremely naive with respect to reporters and the media in general. As a result, I was portrayed as a remorseless, cold-blooded killer, devoid of normal emotions. I learned a hard lesson in trust. About that time, I had my first altercation with the correctional staff in response to an institutional policy that I believe was employed to humiliate and dehumanize death row inmates. The policy requires that, following a visit, the inmate must bend over and pull his buttocks apart so they can see his anus. Obviously, this is very degrading, and they knew it, and still know it. But when they started employing the procedure, the guards would walk down the gallery laughing and taunting the individuals who were forced to submit themselves to this abusive act. As a result, I made up my mind I would not comply. So, after my next visit, I knew what was going to happen. After the visit, they shake you down to ensure that you aren't bringing any contraband back into the facility. The shakedown is a strip search that includes the aforementioned spreading of your butt cheeks so they can examine your anus. So after I stripped naked, they told me to bend over and spread my cheeks, but I didn't do it. I did not say a word. I just stood there naked, and after a short while, I started getting dressed. So they decided it was time to teach me a lesson. Five or six members of the correctional staff jumped on me, knocked me around, and beat me. Then they handcuffed me and beat me some more. But I did not bend over and spread my cheeks, because I was not going to be degraded and humiliated just because some loved ones had visited me. I ended up going to segregation for that incident, which consisted of confinement to my cell 24 hours per day for an extended period of time. But I gained the respect of my peers at the same time. After that incident, I started lifting weights on a regular basis because at that time I weighed only about 150 pounds and wasn't very muscular. I knew that the next time it wouldn't be so easy for them to knock me around and I would easily absorb the hits and kicks if I had a little more weight. While in segregation, one guy in particular respected me for taking a stand against the policy on anal examinations and helped me to start weight training. He also taught me how to box and physically defend myself in anticipation of the possibility that I should ever find myself in that situation again. From then on, I lifted weights with fierceness because never again was I going to be anyone's whipping boy. Things were pretty uneventful from then on. I went back to my daily routine until they found some weed in my cell and back to SEG I went. Later, I came out of SEG but went back and shortly thereafter for getting drunk on some prison hooch. Prison hooch is really nasty stuff, but once you're getting buzzed, the taste doesn't really matter. You just chase that buzz. While drunk on hooch, I cussed a few people out, passed out, 
and went back to Seg for quite a while. But it's important to understand that there was nothing cool or noble about my behavior or situation at that time. I was on death row to be executed for the murders of my family. I was a kid trying to deal with the courts and lawyers whom I began to believe did not have my best interests at heart. I've lived with the haunting images of what led me to death row, plagued with the sense of hopelessness as other people continued on with their lives while I remained in a purgatory where time stands still. I used drugs in prison the same way I used them in the world, to numb my pain and the guilt I was toting around like a ball and chain. I blamed everyone but myself for my problems. At that time, I even believed my guilt was someone else's fault, and that useless cycle of self-deception continued day after day, year after year. There is no glory on death row. It isn't a rec center or holiday getaway. It is your own personal hell that you are going to have to eventually confront before the time will start to move. Otherwise, you are basically a shell of a human being. According to an article by two Chicago Tribune investigative reporters, 33 of those defendants sentenced to death in Illinois from 1977 to 1999 had been represented by, quote, an attorney who had been or was later disbarred or suspended, disciplinary sanctions reserved for conduct so incompetent, unethical, or even criminal that the state believes an attorney's license should be taken away, end quote. And 26 death row inmates, quote, received a new trial or sentencing because their attorney's incompetence rendered the verdict or sentence unfair, court records show." End quote. After about two years on death row, my appeal was denied and another execution date was set. Two more attorneys were assigned to continue the appeal process, which happened without one even knowing about it, so I had to fire them from my case. Eventually, my case became one of attorney Richard Cunningham's many death penalty cases. My taste for lawyers up until that point had become very sour. After my conviction, I had an attorney that I felt blew me off on appeals to the Illinois Supreme Court. Then I had two more attorneys that really did nothing at all. I thought this was happening because I was young and really didn't know any better. After all, these were lawyers who were supposed to ethically have my best interest at heart. I became very active in my case after that. I decided I was not going to be executed just because I passively stayed stupid and let someone else control my destiny. After my initial conversation with Mr. Cunningham, I liked him. He was down to earth, with no high expectations. He kept it straight and simple, and I respected him. Over the years that he was my attorney, we developed a friendship. On a personal note, I've come to realize through the years that most women who get involved with men on death row are damaged in some way. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. There are some very righteous women out there who have the humanistic view that all people are good. However, they sometimes make very bad decisions. I have been blessed in knowing a few of these women, and they have done their best to help me conquer my guilt and hopelessness. They all help me in some way and I will forever be grateful to them. A couple of them showed me the meaning of unconditional love, but due to the visitation restrictions of death row and miscommunication because of lost mail, late mail, or unplaced phone calls due to confinement in seg or lockdowns, those relationships faded away. It takes a hell of a strong woman to walk in these shoes with me. A couple managed to do it for a little while, 
and they truly brighten up some gloomy days. I'll never forget the gifts they gave me. For those gifts of unconditional love, friendship, and partnership, I will forever be grateful. I met and we ended up getting married a few months later. It was all good at the beginning, but then the bricks began falling away and I could see the structure underneath, which is really damaged. In fact, damaged more than me, so it didn't last but a short while.